What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. September 22, 1991, Guilford, Connecticut. Early that evening, a mysterious man visited the home of Christine Brendel and delivered some shocking news. Her brother Ernest and his family had been kidnapped and were being held for ransom by the mafia. I didn't quite know what to make of it. He had Ernie's car and he opened the trunk, was full of blood. It turned out the man at the door, 42-year-old Christopher Hightower, was a pathological liar and a killer. He claimed he needed $75,000 to help free the family. But in reality, it was already too late. He had to stop at, at nothing to get what he wanted. It didn't matter who he hurt. It didn't matter who he conned. Most shocking of all was Hightower's methods. He killed Ernest, who was a friend of his, with a crossbow, strangled his wife Alice, and then drugged their eight-year-old daughter Emily and dumped her in a shallow grave. There was evidence that she was buried alive. That's a monster. That's a monster. But in court, he continued his lies, insisting he saw the mob carry out the killings. I couldn't believe it. It was impossible. Don't kill a child. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Christopher Hightower. This killer's story begins on August 20th, 1949. Christopher Hightower was born in the town of Winterhaven, located in central Florida. His father was a printer. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and author journalist Jeffrey Wansel talk about Hightower's upbringing. In the U.S., this was the, the post-war years. It was the age of affluence, the rise of the consumer society. He comes from what appears to be a traditional nuclear family, the American dream, and nothing appears to be out of the ordinary. He was the eldest of five children, the one who got what he wanted almost always. Young Christopher would soon discover a dark family truth. Hightower discovered that the man whom he called his father was actually his stepfather. His real father abandoned them both when his mother was only 17. It was upsetting, but not something that someone couldn't recover from. That drove a wedge between Hightower and his stepfather that would never be repaired. I think at the time, this, this idea of illegitimacy is incredibly stigmatized in the US, and it would have been something that would make him quite angry. His family have lied to him, and I think that that starts off some, some feelings of rage, some feelings of resentment. Though determined, Hightower wasn't the best student and just barely made it through high school, graduating in 1967. At 19, he left home to join the Navy, he was committed to forging a successful career, unlike his stepfather, the printer, who Hightower dismissed as an underachiever. 
when he leaves, he never sees this man ever again. To be able to just drop somebody and never see them again, somebody who's been such an influential person in your life, suggests to me that this is somebody who does not have the same emotional attachments to other people that the rest of us do. After four years in the Navy, Hightower wanted to start a new career. He got married in August 1973 at 24, then enrolled at the University of Rhode Island to study zoology. Next, he set his sights on medical school and would stop at nothing, even gambling his family's livelihood to achieve his dream. It was revealed that he was actually trying to sell the family home to pay for his, his college education. And his wife wasn't very happy when she found out about this. Hightower divorced his wife of seven years, then quickly fell in love with a woman named Susan. They married in 1992, and his plans to become a doctor were on track. Nothing would get in his way. He set his sights on Wright State University in Ohio and forged his academic qualifications to get accepted. Former state prosecutor Patrick Youngs and state attorney Michael Stone have more on Hightower deceiving his way into college. He had taken his transcripts from the University of Rhode Island, which were fairly pedestrian transcripts, and doctored them so to make it look like he got all A's. The actual truth of the matter was is that he did terrible at URI, University of Rhode Island. Uh, he just about failed almost everything. And so he got into graduate school on a lie. Hightower got what he wanted through fraud. He realized that faking it till you make it could get him where he wanted to go. Soon, he was lured by the highs and lows of the stock market, and this inspired his next scheme. When he was in Ohio, attending Wright State University, um, he had some sort of investment group where he convinced people to invest a modest amount of money. He turned it into a lot of money. Well, it was all a scam. He kept all the money. He was a good salesman, but he had no idea how to actually do it. He had grandiose ideas about himself. And I think he was frustrated at his lack of talent, and eventually he would be discovered to be a fraud. Despite losing hundreds of thousands of dollars of his investors' money, and in some cases their life savings, Hightower was never prosecuted. He'd stumbled on a way to make easy money, it seemed, without consequences. Hightower decided to ditch medical school and moved with his wife Susan over 800 miles to Barrington, Rhode Island. Here, the huckster set up another dubious financial venture. To his neighbors, Hightower seemed like the average family man. They have two children together, and they live with his wife's parents. Now, his wife's parents have got this rather lovely house in Barrington. So essentially what Hightower's doing here is he's being able to perform the perfect American family in the, the lovely big house, but he hasn't had to do a single thing to earn that. What matters for him is how other people see him, and he really thinks that he's got it all sorted now. Hightower was out to prove he was moving up in the world. The smooth-talking salesman started an ostensibly reputable business, Hightower Investments, Inc. In his new downtown office, he bumped into local lawyer Ernest Brendel. He somehow convinced Ernie that he should invest some of his money with him, and he had a formula that he said was foolproof. Of course, he didn't have any formula. He didn't know what he was doing in the commodities business. Everything that he said was a total fabrication. Soon, Hightower and Ernest became the best of friends. Their families even started vacationing together in New Hampshire. By now, Hightower had become an upstanding member of the community. 
He was a local Sunday school teacher and coached the town's youth soccer team. He was such good friends with the, with the Brendels that when Emily went to the YMCA after school, Hightower was on her list of approved people to pick her up. He was such a good family friend, he was actually on the list as someone they trusted to pick up their daughter. Eventually, Hightower persuaded Ernest to invest $15,000 in his get-rich-quick scam. Hightower is a very parasitic individual who will feed off other people. And he will have come to know about Ernest and how much money he had just through spending time with him and the family. So these, these people are predators. They identify people's vulnerabilities. They kind of get to figure out what people have and what they can get out of them. Hightower is a perfect role model, the kind of person everyone can trust. And when con men are concerned, Trust is everything. Within a year, Ernest Brendel started having doubts. He discovered that instead of making him money, Hightower had squandered nearly $12,000 of his investment. Ernie realized that this system was a scam. And when he realized that, he did what you would expect Mr. Brendel to do. He reported it to the Commodities Future Trading Commission, which is the commission in this country that oversees commodities. It was the wrong person for Hightower to, to trick. He realized that it was only a matter of time before people found out exactly what he was up to. The Sunday school teaching, the coaching the soccer team, that cherished reputation that he'd built up was about to disintegrate. Not only was Hightower standing in the community in jeopardy, the complaint against him would mean he'd lose his license to trade and his livelihood. Hightower's house of cards was crumbling. In his mind, there was only one course of action to take. Murder. I'd like to introduce you to Sinisterhood, the comedy podcast about all things sinister. Join longtime comedians and best friends Christy Wallace and Heather McKinney as they cover true crime, cults, cryptids, unsolved mysteries, and strange phenomena. From the real story behind HBO's new show, Love and Death, to the Bermuda Triangle, to the UFO cult associated with Sleepy Time Tea. Join Sinisterhood each Wednesday for episodes with plenty of research, lots of laughs, and legal insight from Heather, a licensed attorney. Plus, catch all new odd but true tales submitted by listeners every Friday with occasional guest stories from special friends like Patrick and Jillian from True Crime Obsessed, Em and Christine from And That's Why We Drink, and more. Listen to Sinisterhood on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. September 1991, Barrington, Rhode Island. 42-year-old con man Christopher Hightower's world was falling apart. His friend, Ernest Brendel, secretly reported Hightower to the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission upon discovering he'd been defrauded out of nearly $12,000. Former state prosecutor Patrick Young says that this was the beginning of the end of Hightower's control over the con. When Mr. Brendel invested with uh, Mr. Hightower, they agreed on a limit, but he kept investing and he kept going. So he passed the stop trading agreement, and that really precipitated Mr. Brendel to really come down on Mr. Hightower, get his money back, but stop Hightower from scamming anybody else. And that's really what started, I believe, the ball unraveling for Mr. Hightower. With an official complaint against him pending, Hightower's license to trade was hanging in the balance, and his business was falling apart. 
The phone at his office had been disconnected, and his landlord was chasing him for $1,800 of unpaid rent. His problems with debt caused issues for him at home. The walls were closing in on Hightower. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley delves into the family dynamics at the Hightower home. Hightower's wife says that she wants a divorce. She doesn't want this marriage to continue. Now for Hightower, this is, this is terrible because she is essentially the, the access route to this, this lifestyle that he's been performing. They live in her parents' house. It's very grand. Everybody thinks that he's very wealthy. Um, so he threatens her. Rhode Island once had a reputation as a mob state with key figures of the mafia believed to be operating in the area. In a desperate ploy, Hightower threatened his wife with associates he claimed he had in the criminal underworld. Barrington's chief of police, Charles Brule, and former state prosecutor Patrick Youngs explain Hightower's ridiculous idea. He allegedly had told her that he had paid a group of organized hitmen to kill her for $5,000, and for another $1,000, he would make her disappearance uh, complete. It was this his fantasy world he lived in. I don't think there was any truth to any of that. His marriage was ending. He was concerned, I believe, about whether he'd see his kids. His professional life, such as it was, was falling apart, so this was all crashing in on him at the same time. Hightower's answer? to eliminate the man who had filed the complaint against him, threatening his livelihood and reputation, 53-year-old Ernest Brendel. On Thursday, September 19th, Hightower set off on a six-mile journey to the town of Seekonk, Massachusetts. He goes to uh, Massachusetts and buys a bear devastator crossbow, and he bought six bolts. He had told his um, family he would be out maybe all night or come back very late. I suspect there would have been quite a lot of stalking of the Brendel family. So he would have known what their movements were, what time they left, what time they arrived home, their routines. This was a very well-planned murder. The following morning, Ernest's eight-year-old daughter, Emily, left on the school bus. Then Ernest drove his wife, Alice, to work at nearby Brown University. Seizing his moment, Christopher Hightower broke into the house. Hightower goes and, and hides out, essentially, in Ernest's garage, so he lays in wait for him. He could decide not to do it. But the fact that he doesn't suggests to me that this is somebody who is emotionally empty, who just does not care about harming other people, and he's there on a mission, and he's not going to leave until he's executed that mission. With his lethal weapon at the ready, Hightower watched Ernest Brendel pull into the driveway. We believe when Ernie pulled into his garage, Hightower was waiting for him with the bear devastator and shot him three times with the crossbow. The first shot to Mr. Brendel um, didn't kill him. The second shot hit him in the, in the posterior. And then the third shot was a kill shot. Went through his spinal cord, through his esophagus, into his heart. So he killed him right away. To make sure his nemesis was dead, Hightower bludgeoned Ernest's head with a crowbar. This individual is a psychopath. He very much lives in the present moment. And as far as he's concerned at this point in time, Ernest has been taken out of the picture and he's hoping that actually everything's going to be fine because this complaint isn't going to get looked at and, and everything will go back to normal. Now that he'd exacted his revenge, Hightower calmly cleaned up the crime scene using hydrochloric acid. He drove the body a mile away to a remote woodland on the edge of town. After burying Ernest in a shallow grave, 
The killer returned home and washed his clothes. But then Hightower got an unexpected surprise. The sheriffs arrived with the restraining order um, that had been sought by his wife. So when he's served the restraining order, he now has no place to live. Destitute and now homeless, Hightower returned to the scene of his crime. As he monitored messages left on the Brendel's answering machine, his thoughts turned to what he was going to do about the rest of the family. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says that Hightower realized that Ernest had a whole world around him that couldn't just be ignored. Family life goes on. There are commitments, there are responsibilities. And on that particular day, Ernest was expected to pick up his daughter from school. Ernest's wife, Alice, and eight-year-old daughter, Emily, would be next on Hightower's hit list. He had to silence them before they raised suspicion. That same day, daughter Emily had been on a school trip. The killer made plans to pick her up. So he calls uh, the Primrose School where Emily attended, and pretends to be Mr. Brindell, said, Emily can walk home. And to their credit, the school said, no, that's not, that's, that's not gonna happen. Not one to be diverted from his mission, the determined Hightower then stole Alice's car and drove it to the YMCA where Emily was enjoying her usual after-school care. So he goes to the Y, tries to pick her up, and they won't let her because he's no longer on their proof list. So then the YMCA gets a phone call, purportedly from Mr. Brendel, but uh, undoubtedly from Hightower. This is Ernie Brendel. My friend, Christopher Hightower, who was on my list, is going to pick her up. I'm going to give him my driver's license, which he has access to because Ernie's dead. So he goes to the YMCA and gets Emily. Even though Hightower was a trusted family friend, eight-year-old Emily had a sixth sense that something wasn't right. She tried to call her father, Ernest, to warn him, leaving a message on the family's voicemail. Emily knew this wasn't right, and it's dad, dad. Yeah, this doesn't seem right, something like that. But eventually the YMCA lets her go. And that's the last anybody that we know of saw her was the, the woman at the YMCA who sees her walking to Alice's car with Christopher Hightower. Once home, Hightower drugged eight-year-old Emily with Benadryl, then tied her up in the basement. The brutal killer knew she'd be useful as a bargaining chip when Mother Alice came home. Alice always got the bus home. Ernest would pick her up from the stop, but on this particular evening, Ernest wasn't there, so she made her own way. Once home, she too was held hostage by Hightower. Throughout the day, people arrived at the house. Um, little girls came looking for Emily. He said she wasn't home. At one point, a uh, discount store showed up to deliver a mattress. He sent them away. Mother and daughter were held captive until the next morning when Hightower used Alice to carry out the final act of his plan. On Ernest's computer, he made her type out a letter in Ernest's name to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, withdrawing his complaints against Christopher Hightower. It's believed she left a coded message for the police. She put Hightower's initials on the file she opened, and we often thought that was a clue. With no further need for his hostages, Hightower strangled Alice. Later that evening, he drove her body, along with her sleeping daughter Emily, to the remote forest on the edge of town where Ernest was buried. In the black of night, Hightower dug them a shallow grave, then buried eight-year-old Emily underneath her mother. Former detective Gary Palumbo remembers. 
there was evidence that, that she was buried alive. I know he gave her Benadryl and in sufficient amount that would make her drowsy or, you know, or sleepy, but it wasn't enough to, to kill a child. That's a monster. That's a monster. Many people will say, well, well maybe he, he felt bad. Maybe he, he didn't want her to kill her and he was just burying her body just to, to kind of get it out of sight, out of mind. Um, but I think he's coming towards the end of his plan here. And perhaps the, the killing of Emily wasn't as carefully thought through as the killing of Ernest and Alice. After burying Alice and Emily, Hightower covered the graves with lime to mask the smell of decomposition. He buries them quite close to their home. And this is interesting for me because he has a lot in common with other killers here. Um, he's, he's thought fairly carefully about the murders themselves, but he hasn't thought very carefully about the aftermath in much detail. They're in a place where they're going to be discovered. Mother Nature would soon betray Hightower's dark secret, and the reputation of the upstanding churchgoer would be destroyed. Soon, Christopher Hightower would be known not as a Sunday school teacher, but as a family slayer. This episode of What Makes a Killer is brought to you by BetterHelp. So, friends, I am having surgery on my hip tomorrow, and my anxiety level is at, I would say, maybe an 11 out of 10 at this point. And that means that uh, I probably will have a lot of trouble sleeping tonight. I have a lot of trouble sleeping in general. And if you find that this happens to you too, that specific events get you super riled up, or that you are always operating it, maybe like, a 7 out of 10 on the anxiety scale. You don't have to live like that. Maybe therapy would help you. You know, therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. We all have, you know, crap that weighs us down. And the people at BetterHelp can help you become the best version of yourself and help you sort out all those things that keep you up in the middle of the night or keep that knot in your stomach 24-7. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com what today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot what. September 22, 1991, Barrington, Rhode Island. 42-year-old Christopher Hightower had just killed Ernest Brendel and his family in a bid to stop Ernest from exposing his investment scam. Hightower dug Ernest, wife Alice, and their daughter Emily a shallow grave in the woods on the edge of town. Eight-year-old Emily had been drugged and was believed to be buried alive. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explains Hightower's thinking. The fact that Hightower kills a child is, is shocking, is awful. And we reflect on the fact that he's a father himself. 
Here's somebody who is completely cold, who is completely emotionally empty. So he would have felt absolutely no hesitation at killing the child because he sees people in terms of what they can do for him, whether they're a threat to him, whether they're a barrier to him. There's no emotional connection to them. Barrington was unaware of the grisly family murders that had taken place in the close-knit town. After disposing of his victims, Hightower stole Alice's car and went on a spending spree with her husband Ernest's checkbook. Former state prosecutor Patrick Young's recounts Hightower's day after the killings. He went about his business buying stuff, cleaning supplies, and, you know, cashing checks. We, we got him at a yogurt store. We got him pumping gas. And we got him all over Barrington and, and southeastern Massachusetts. Aware that someone would soon raise concern over the Brendel's disappearance, Hightower had to work out his alibi. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel describes what the situation was from Hightower's perspective. Now he's scared that everything is going to come out and he's got to find a way of sorting it out. The finger of suspicion is almost inevitably going to point to him. So he devises a plan and goes to see Ernest's sister. That Sunday evening, in the stolen family car, Hightower set off on a 95-mile journey to Guilford, Connecticut, where Ernest's sister Christine lived. She was very fond of her elder brother. Ernie was two years older than me. He was my big brother. And we were pretty close, I think, for a brother and a sister. And we led a very active, physically active childhood. Our parents had a house in the Pocono Mountains, so in the summer we just sort of ran wild. As adults, they remained close, even after Ernest married Alice. Oh, we had a good relationship. We argued, but we argued when we were kids, too. Alice was the great peacemaker, mediator. You couldn't not have a good relationship with her because she was very easy to get along with. On Sunday evening, September 22nd, Christine was totally unaware of the tragedy that had befallen her brother and his family. His killer, Christopher Hightower, showed up at her door. We had guests for dinner. And he arrived at the door and started telling me his crazy story. And I said, why don't you go in the living room and sit down and relax? I said, because we can't do anything about this until my guests leave. So I sort of hurried them out of the door. And then uh, my husband and I sat down with Hightower. And then we started hearing his story, which was nuts. Hightower was a stranger to her. And she was somewhat skeptical when Hightower told her that her brother Ernest and his family were being held hostage by the mafia. I didn't quite know what to make of it, but I didn't think what he was telling me was the truth. Then he decided that he would show us uh, the car. Hightower showed Christine and her husband Ernest's bank cards and driver's license. He then opened up the trunk of the family car to reveal a massive bloodstain. He said the blood came from Ernest's broken jaw, an injury sustained during the kidnapping. But Christine's husband was a doctor, and he wasn't buying that story. He said to me was that there was a lot of blood and is probably more than someone could bleed and still be alive. We knew that something really bad had happened, but we didn't know exactly what. Hightower stated the mafia wanted 300 grand to release Ernest and his family. 
He asked Christine and her husband for $75,000 to help pay the ransom. We just told them that we don't obviously don't have that kind of money around the house. We don't deal in cash. Hightower left empty-handed, but he warned Christine and Alex not to call the police, cautioning that their phones had been tapped. Once Hightower left, they went to a neighbor's house and called the authorities right away. We went over there and called the FBI because I thought that, you know, if it's kidnapped, it's much better to get them on the case. The FBI alerted the local Barrington police, who conducted a thorough search of the Brendel family home. Former Detective Gary Palumbo remembers the search. We forcibly entered the house. The one thing that I noticed right off the top is there were no cords to the telephones. It wasn't connected to anything, and the cords were gone. So that raised my suspicion a little bit. And when we go out to the garage, the southwest window of the garage looked like somebody forcibly entered through there. There was no obvious evidence of a murder scene, but the police were concerned about the missing family of three. The only potential link to their whereabouts was Christopher Hightower, who Christine had reported was driving the family's Toyota. For Barrington's chief of police, Charles Brule, Hightower needed to be brought in for questioning. I advised the dispatcher to put a broadcast out on the motor vehicle we were looking for, and one of the officers on patrol who was in the Barrington shopping center saw the vehicle exiting, uh, stopped the vehicle, and at that point we took the individual into custody. Once in custody, Hightower feigned concern about the Brendel's whereabouts. He also told the police they had been kidnapped by the mob. Meanwhile, investigators were searching the family's Toyota. Based on the search warrant, we found an empty bag of lime, blood splatters and stains inside the car, and in the trunk, there was a crossbow. And also, they found three teeth, which ended up being Ernie's, uh, in the back of the car. It was obvious about the evidence that was inside the Toyota, which was accumulation of bloodstains, more than the person would receive from a beating, from a facial beating. We thought the family was in trouble at that time, especially just observing the car without searching it. You could see the, you know, you could see the bloodstains, so we, we thought they were in trouble. With this forensic evidence and no sightings of the Brendels alive in the previous three days, the police believed they had a triple murder on their hands. Feeling the pressure, Hightower made his first mistake in his underworld abduction story. When the police commented on tire tracks found near Hightower's home, his facade faltered. They're not buried there, he told them. Well, it's quite interesting because that's implying I do have some knowledge about this. And this is a power play. He's basically saying to the police, I do know something about this, but I'm not going to give it up that easily. Um, so he's, he's trying to, to, to buy himself time. He's very much in control. As news of the Brendel's disappearance spread, concerned Barrington residents helped in any way they could. Within a week's time, uh, they started organizing uh, searches. They would have searches where community members could volunteer, and they would come out and assist. Forensic investigators combed through the Brendel's home finding microscopic evidence that the killer had failed to clean up. 
This evidence was linked to the crossbow found in Hightower's possession. Now, it was a potential murder weapon. There was a little hole in uh, the garage door that determined to be caused by an arrow, by a bolt. And forensically, they ended up finding blood splatters in that area. With news that police had uncovered a likely murder scene, Ernest's sister Christine was losing hope. As time went on, it just got worse. And, you know, the, the chances that they were alive and the chances that they were unharmed were less and less. And um, it was too much. As police dug into Hightower's background, they found a busted and broke man with a trail of flim-flamming leading all the way back to his investment scams in Ohio. On October 2nd, U.S. regulator the National Futures Association told investigators about a letter it had purportedly received from Ernest Brendel withdrawing a complaint against broker Christopher Hightower. Forensics experts examined it and determined it was a forgery. Now the police knew this complaint could be their prime suspect's motive for murder. November 1991, Barrington, Rhode Island. The town was shocked to learn 42-year-old Sunday school teacher Christopher Hightower was arrested in connection with the disappearance of the Brandell family. Despite a six-week search for their bodies, Ernest, wife Alice, and their eight-year-old daughter Emily were still missing. Former state prosecutor Patrick Youngs remembers looking for the family. A huge army of law enforcement with a lot of volunteers spent six weeks looking for the Brendels. We searched cemeteries, we searched abandoned pits, we looked everywhere. We had dogs, the FBI brought in mediums, we talked to profilers from the FBI, and, but we couldn't find them. On November 7th, a Barrington resident out walking in remote woodlands next to one of the town's schools made a suspicious discovery. Former Detective Gary Palumbo recalls finding the bodies. We get a phone call uh, saying that a woman walking her dog had uh, seen her dog reacted to an area. She showed us where it was. Myself and the sergeant went in, and it was briars and bushes. And then all of a sudden, it was no more briars, no more bushes. And you could see where, an area where there were depressions, we dug the area where the depressions were. One depression revealed uh, Ernie's knee, and the second depression revealed Alice's knee. And that's when we stopped and called the forensics. As a Barrington resident himself, it was the discovery even Gary Palumbo was dreading. They train you, they mentor you, don't get emotional, leave it uh, at work, but I was angry doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize what you found. And, and uh, so I was angry. The FBI and forensics teams swooped in on the shallow grave. Former state prosecutor Patrick Youngs was also called to attend. He saw damning evidence linking Christopher Hightower to the crime scene. Within the hole where Mr. Brendel was, was a piece of a bag of lime the piece of a bag of lime that matched the bag of lime that was in the car that Mr. Hightower's driving, that we had a receipt that he bought at a hardware store. So we knew that, boy, we got him. 
In a shallow grave next to Ernest, they uncovered the body of his wife, Alice. She'd clearly been strangled as a ligature had been left around her neck. And underneath Alice, they found eight-year-old daughter, Emily. It was extremely sad. And um, you could see a little shoe in the dirt. State police detective pressed to, to make sure there was a foot in there. That, that was a very sad moment. We had a photograph of Emily taken on Friday because she went on a field trip. She went to Newport to see a Viking ship. And we knew what clothes she had on on Friday. She had the same clothes on. And that just, to me, that was just so sad. It was just so sad seeing this little girl. Um, so it, it was a very emotional day for everybody there. There were police officers in the hole with them. That was, it was a very solemn occasion. That same day, Emily's aunt, Ernest's sister Christine, was told the news. We had, I think, already had a funeral service. I mean, we knew they were dead. My mother was still alive. And Ernie was the absolute apple of her eye. But she was in the early stages of dementia. And she said things like, where's your brother? Or, he, he hasn't come to visit me recently. I'd say, Mom, he's dead. It was very difficult. With the discovery of the Brendel's bodies, their killer would finally face justice. Christopher Hightower was charged on three counts of murder and one of kidnapping. His trial started 16 months later, on March 8, 1993, at the Supreme Court of Rhode Island. Former state prosecutor Patrick Youngs helped prepare the case. Most cases that we prosecute, we usually have some sort of direct evidence. And a direct evidence is either an eyewitness to the crime or a confession. We had neither. He, he never confessed. But circumstantial cases, if you do it the right way, are the most compelling cases. Not only did the prosecution present the man who sold Hightower the crossbow, they called nearly a hundred other witnesses. We could trace his receipts. And we had witnesses that saw him around town. Um, he bought muriatic acid to clean the floor of the horse barn. Each little witness had a little essential dot to fill in. So we had witnesses that would see him at the house. We put in the delivery guy who showed up to deliver a mattress. We put in the, 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 the neighbor who saw Hightower with, with the hose. We put in the guy at the, at the shell station who pumped gas with him. We put in all these little dots. And at the end, they all pointed in only one direction, and that was Mr. Hightower. When Hightower took to the stand, true to form, he had an elaborate explanation for the mountain of evidence against him. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says that Hightower was back to his old tricks with the reasoning. Unbelievably, Hightower explained that Ernest had got involved with the mob and some serious drug dealing. Hightower alleged he was at Ernest's house when the mafia arrived and murdered the Brendel family in a dispute over money. He said he saw eight-year-old Emily strangled. They had already said they were going to kill her. They didn't tell him where the money was. I couldn't believe it. It was impossible. Don't kill the child. Then Hightower declared he was threatened himself. Sometime during the evening, 
pillowcase uh, or something was placed over my head. I was taken out to one of the cars. He said he was forced to dig the Brendel's graves, otherwise his own family would be killed. I picked up the shovel and I started digging and I begged him, please, I'll do whatever you want, just leave him alone. Complete lies. There is no doubt whatever. Mr. Hightower claimed, I didn't do it. The mafia did it. These drug dealers did it. So he got on the stand and said, I'm innocent. I didn't kill anyone. Who did? The people that were with Mr. Brindell. State Attorney Michael Stone tore into Hightower's tales on behalf of the prosecution. I think he thought by testifying that he was going to convince the jury that he actually had nothing to do with these murders. I think he's the type of person who believes his own lie. Stone's pivotal moment in making the case was by proving beyond doubt that Christopher Hightower was a pathological liar. In court, he produced the transcripts Hightower had falsified to get into Wright State University 11 years prior. You didn't get accepted into that master's program with a 2.5 average, did you? No, I did not. Why is that? Because I had contacted an individual at the um, University of Rhode Island and, and uh, obtained a forged transcript. I think by the time I finished that it was evident to the jurors that he was a, a total fabrication and that Ernie Brindell was just the person who got in his way and was expendable. He definitely is a person who cared about nothing else but himself. After four days of cross-examination, Hightower looked defeated. In desperation, his defense team even brought an expert psychiatrist to testify that Hightower was delusional, but the court dismissed any claims of insanity. On June 8, 1993, Christopher Hightower was sentenced to life without parole. It was the result that investigators and prosecutors had hoped for. Well, I think everybody was relieved. We're thankful we got the monster off the street and he's gonna stay off the street. Barrington's chief of police, Charles Brule, remembers his final words to Hightower. He's probably the lowest form of life on the earth. I had the opportunity to confront him when I was in my second employment in the federal court, and I just told him, I said, you rotten bastard, I hope you rot in hell. And that's the way I feel, because you know? there isn't any place for him in any kind of society at all. He's despicable. It's all about him. People were objects to him. People were there to be used to further his means. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says there are few people quite like Christopher Hightower. Hightower is such a cold and a despicable killer because nothing gets in his way. He is literally like a steamroller and the devastation that, that he perpetrates lasts for a very, very long time. For Christine, there was some small comfort in knowing that the man who brutally wiped out her brother's family could never kill again. I mean, I, I, Emily was a dear child, and I, the fact that he could kill her just absolutely leaves me absolutely no, no sympathy for him. He's an awful person, and he's 
soulless. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last on the next episode of What Makes a Killer. Northern Tampa, Florida, 1984. A 17-year-old girl named Lisa had been abducted and was subjected to a terrifying 26-hour ordeal by a sadistic sexual predator. Unlike his other victims, she was the only one to survive. A sexual sadist, a man who's thought nothing of abusing, mutilating, stabbing women. He was a man who had a ferocious hatred of women. At his peak, the bodies of the killer's victims were discovered at a rate of one every other week. The evidence revealed that a depraved serial killer was at work. Each crime scene was was like somebody crazed, uh, not even somebody, something, monster type. You know, it was just terrible. That monster was 31-year-old Army veteran and divorced father of two, Bobby Joe Long. I don't know if I was blind or, you know, but I, I never imagined in a million years that he was capable of doing the things that he's done. He was an animal, you know? And I mean, this is somebody that I loved.